This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Lou Dobbs, host of the Fox Business Channel, offers his thoughts on the president's agenda and America's future. He's interviewed by Victor Davis Hanson, author and Hoover Institution Senior Fellow. Lou Dobbs, before we start on this recent, quite fascinating book of yours, The Trump Century, I've got to ask you a question. You worked on and off for CNN for some 30 years. Mm-hmm. You had a variety of shows. You had you were not an Orthodox Republican. You were obviously not a liberal Democrat. Could you go back into that environment today or someone like you? Or what was the calculus or the formula that allowed you to exist for three decades? Did you have a particular relationship with Ted Turner or just enlighten us a little bit that the fact development? Well, it, it was helpful that I joined CNN in 1980 at the beginning. I was one of the founders of, uh, of CNN, uh, one of the uh, the fortunate uh, ones who was there from the, you know, from the, I was president to creation, as they say. And uh, it, it was a spectacular place to work as we built it because it was something uh, unthought of before Ted Turner. Uh, the global uh, cable news uh, cast, uh, and uh, he put it into into action and institutionalized it. Uh, it was really, truly remarkable. Uh, but it changed over time, as these things do. And we founded it in 1980, and by 1984, Ted was uh, on the Forbes uh, most, uh, you know, the wealthiest list, and had been basically on the verge of bankruptcy as uh, you know just four years earlier when he founded it so they his position changed so did ours suddenly we're in the white house pool we're growing and over time uh, his commitment ted's commitment to a more liberal uh, approach to the news uh, became far more serious and emphatic and uh, by 1999 it was clear that uh, you know it was going to be a tough, tough balancing act. Uh, but at that point, I wasn't so much an advocacy journalist. Mm-hmm. By 2009, when we had our final uh, falling out, uh, not with Ted, but with uh, Time Warner, uh, it was uh, it was just simply a matter of ideology. I was saying as many critical things about George W. Bush, perhaps more that I ever said about Barack H. Obama. Uh, The truth is they didn't, they were committed to a different approach. They decided it would be ideological, that there was only room for one point of view instead of a tent with many voices. And I was the only conservative on the air. And obviously that just did not work out. And if anything, it's gone in even more decided fashion to the left uh, rather than to either independent journalism or, or uh, to moderation, as you know. One last question before we get to the details of your book. In this three-decade evolution of CNN, you sort of broadened from spe- more specific interest in business or the economy to a wider panorama of news in general, politics, economics. And you started to fashion, as I watched you during these years, that you had a certain worldview that would not be easily categorized like on issues of trade or immigration. Right. That started to emerge. Did you ever think that there would be a candidate, not a third-party candidate, but one of the major two candidates 
for the presidency that would dovetail with this with this formula, this ideology that you had been over 30 years gravitating to. Did you ever think it would happen like this? Uh, honestly, Victor, I didn't think I didn't think we would see it perhaps in my lifetime. I was hoping that we would. But I and I was, you know, I've known uh, Ted, uh, Ted Turner, uh, Donald Trump, uh, for as long as I'd known Ted Turner. But we weren't friends. It was a professional relationship. And I, I watched as this man stepped out and by 2016 running for president. And I, I have to tell you, I rejoice because he was uh, independent minded. He was secular, if you will. He was uh, uh, even agnostic about his politics, as he's acknowledged. Uh, and for me, that was exciting because, first of all, that meant he wasn't uh, allied with either the Republican Party or the Democrat uh, in ideology, uh, in philosophy. But he was aligned with patriots and this country. Uh, I always, I, I, I blanch every time I hear uh, the expression white nationalism in this country. It's nationalism. It's not white. It is every color, every creed we've got. It, nation, being a, an American nationalist means that you embrace the Constitution, which is our great assurance of equality, of equal opportunity, uh, of respect for, uh, for all citizens. And he embodies that. He truly does. And so I was very excited to, uh, to see him run. And, uh, and it brought me back to the Republican Party. I was an independent. Uh, and and a, I think a fierce independent in most uh, respects. You, uh, in the book, you outline these four or five signature issues, uh, making, ensuring that immigration is legal, measured, meritocratic and not illegal and uh, overwhelming the, the ability of the so-called melting getting tough with China, uh, favoring fair rather than free trade. Uh, you didn't buy into the idea that the industrial Midwest was tired or played out, that it could be reinvented, and you were very skeptical, as I read the book, of these optional military engagements, specifically in the Middle East, oh. that, in a cost-benefit analysis didn't play out either for us or for the region at large. But there were other third party candidates that had picked up on some of this, Pat Buchanan maybe, or Ron Paul. Right. What was it about Trump? Did he incorporate these issues within the broader fabric of traditional conservatism or was it his personality? Why did he succeed when these other third party people had found utter failure at the national level? Yeah, the third party candidates that I've known, and I'm glad you mentioned Pat because Pat uh, was unreservedly an independent thinker, uh, irrespective of his uh, political preference for Republican. Uh, he, he was a conservative. Uh, the difference for Donald Trump is he was beholden to none of the establishment. Uh, this is a clash of uh, so many uh, so many influences in our society, uh, what we are contending with now. But fundamentally, this is a clash with the an establishment that controls both political parties, or did, until the arrival of Donald Trump. Donald Trump 
broke through and said, I will take on the orthodoxies. I will be the disruptor. He will represent the forgotten man and woman in this country. He pledged to do that. And within days, he was doing that. Uh, he has, he, he's one of those uh, surprises that, uh, uh, and delights that we rarely have in politics. He's a man who said what he meant, and he kept his promises. And that drives the left, the establishment mad, because he's taking on this multi-trillion dollar uh, business roundtable. It's 135, 140 CEOs control a huge part of our GDP. Uh, he took on the Chamber of Commerce uh, the, and their ridiculous mantra that free trade uh, is, is the boon to the American economy, when it was certainly not. Uh, the, we financed the rest of the world, certainly, and Wall Street did great. But one of the reasons a working man and woman in this country didn't share in that uh, for some 20 years before Trump and had stagnant wages and less opportunity is because it was a financial uh, benefit uh, for, the, for the elites, but not for the middle class, which is the foundation of the country. You, you, in your book, you know, you talk, have a chapter, jobs, job, jobs, and that's one theme that ties together almost everything in the Trump century. And it's true that he had record unemployment for minorities in 2019. I think he got down to 3.5. He almost got 3% or did almost. Uh, annual GDP. And the point I'm making is that what you say was a two-pronged assault on the left and the right, and it was a populist, empathetic message. And why do you think that if he gave, say, to take one example, inner-city youth, for the first time in their lives, they were being bid by, on, their, their labor was being bid on by employers rather than begging employers, or he created right. a situation that empowered the powerless, why do you think that empathetic message or that attitude never was picked up by the, or never resonated? He didn't really emphasize it. The media didn't like him. But why do we not think of, we being the public, that Donald Trump was the most empathetic and concerned president about the lower and middle classes? Because he doesn't speak in the same language as the, uh, as the elitist of both parties. Uh, they have a lexicon all to themselves, and it's programmatic. It's about what they will do. It makes a number of assumptions. Uh, they are talking about the dependency of those who, who are in the, uh, the inner city, who are low income, and, and that's the basis. It's a, it's a condescension of government uh, that's wrapped up in uh, the idea that without dependency, what is the role for government? And we have now a huge permanent bureaucracy that requires uh, dependency on the part of a good-sized uh, number of our, our people. Uh, they've gotten used to it over 65, well, well since 1965, uh, when the war on poverty began. We spent over $22 trillion dollars. And we have everything but a measuring uh, bureau, uh, a metrics bureau for success. No one wants to follow up on uh, uh, black youth in the inner city 
and what happens to them when they go to these public schools that are run by unions uh, rather than by their communities. Uh, it's, it's a strange, strange world we've created uh, and one that both parties have been perfectly content until now to permit uh, to continue a status quo in perpetuity. You know, another theme, as well as the Trump jobs program and its success in creating employment that we hadn't seen in 50 years, is China. And you talk in a variety of contexts about China. Prior to Trump, I think everybody felt that China, everybody, meaning among the elite, bipartisan elite, that China was ascendant. The more concessions we gave to it, the more they would repay that gratitude with magnanimity on their part. They would become wealthy. They would democratize. They would westernize. They would be take over the world in a general way. We would manage decline, I think, as Obama put it. You come along and say, uh, Trump stopped that ascendance in a variety of fronts. But what I'm interested in the general idea, you never really thought, as you suggest in your book, that China was all that strong and was predetermined to rule the world, but it had intrinsic weaknesses that we either didn't see or we didn't want to see. But I never got from your book that you felt that it was this steamroller that was inevitable, that there were contradictions in its whole mercantile plan that that you were trying to warn people about with strong action, we could stop it. I, I started uh, 20 years ago talking about the red storm rising. We've known for a quarter century that China had front companies operating in this uh, nation with only one purpose. And that was to steal our technology, our military secrets, uh, take them back to China and, and exploit them. Uh, our, our technological advances, uh, and they saved themselves a lot of money on investing in education, uh, actual research and development of their own. And that's what they've done. We helped, we built China in some respects, as the president put it. We literally built it. They're taking $600 billion a year from us in our intellectual property, stealing it. They have been running deficits uh, with this country from the beginning of the relationship. Uh, they, we have been in deficit to them in trade, and we have shared our technology both openly and willingly, as well as permissively permitting their theft. Uh, it's been an extraordinary, uh, unprecedented relationship between a wealthy power and an emerging one. Uh, at no time, at no time was it re required of us that we be the global chump that we played. And we did it under uh, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama. Uh, we, you couldn't have asked for a trifecta of worse presidents to string together uh, uh, in, in the national security. It's devastating to look at what we have squandered. Uh, and we did so with the sure knowledge uh, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, who is a left-wing uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist, but a brilliant man, and he warned us that what the wars of the Middle East would would amount to. He just didn't give us a sufficient warning. He told us it would cost three trillion for our adventurism in Iraq, and uh, it ended up being six trillion dollars and counting. Uh, in addition to the lives we've lost. It, it's, we have gone through a period of madness 
I, I, that is remarkable. And it took Donald Trump to step forward. I love this expression, Trump derangement syndrome. Victor, he's the only one who wasn't deranged in the entire city of Washington. It's, it's really quite something to, to behold. One of the things you point out is how insidious this presence is. And we saw it with an NBA that has developed a $5 billion market that mm-hmm. not only balances off or offsets the losses that's suffering with its declining domestic viewership, but changes the ideology of the NBA itself where they're more critical about yeah. any misdemeanors in the United States and they ignore the felonies of human rights and re-education camps, racism, Hong Kong and China. And the same we found out um, recently with Hollywood that part of the anger at the racial makeup of movies was in part a reaction to directors who were under orders or at least perceived orders in China that, that China wanted lighter skinned actors. And so how do you, how do you, in your book, you have a lot of ideas, but how feasible is it at this late date, given the insidious presence that we don't even feel, we can't even detect it, that's in sports and entertainment, media, politics, because they seem so much more adept than the Soviets during the Cold War at understanding weaknesses. You know, I, I, I infer from your question that you're, you're suggesting uh, that we can't change what we brought uh, because we are so inextricably intertwined with China, which is insidiously, as you suggest, uh, enmeshed itself in our economy, in our society, even our culture. As you, as you say, Hollywood right now is editing their films, indeed shooting their movies, in many cases uh, with a with a, a, a cant to Beijing because they want their international market that uh, to be uh, excited about their product. It's no longer for a U.S. audience. It's no longer a U.S. product. We went through a long period where it was no longer uh, – it was always an American product, but for an international audience. That product coming out of Hollywood now is a international and Chinese product, and the United States market sort of tags along behind it. It's uh, a major, major change in our society and our culture and business, uh, uh, the business of, uh, of entertainment and media because this gives Beijing inordinate influence. Uh, their values are being represented in movies in many time, in many cases, uh, much more than U.S. traditional American values. And the world knows it, they see it, and by the way, they're accepting it. I know it. Uh, one of the things you talk about is the China lie, and let's go to the Wuhan virus, if we can use that term, the virus that originated Wuhan, China. Sure. Right. It seems that all of the narratives that we were told that it didn't really emerge until January when we knew it was known far earlier in the fall of um, right. 2019, that it emerged accidentally in a wet market from pangolins. We know that that narrative has been discredited. So I think there is a consensus that it came out of a lab, but whether it was accidental or whatever the uh, narrative goes, why do you, why do you, what was their attitude about it? Why did they allow 
direct flights into SFO and LAX, say, for 12 days after you couldn't go from Wuhan anywhere else in China. What was your thinking, you think? Forget about the origins or whether it was accidental or intentional, but what, do you, what was your mindset about it that unleashed this thing from Wuhan and really destroyed the Western economy in a way that we never thought would be possible? As you, as you say, this, this virus was unique. I, was it engineered? We still can't say scientifically with great uh, empirical evidence uh, or judgment that what it was. Was it natural? Was it man-made? But we do know for a fact uh, that whether accidental or engineered, the the communist Chinese government knew for months that it was transmissible, human to human, and they knew very early on that it was deadly. They hid those truths from their own people, of course, but they very importantly, hid the truth from the rest of the world, the WHO, the CDC. And what people may not realize is that the U.S. public health institutions and some of the best doctors in all the world are great friends and colleagues of doctors in China. And that's fine. But we also took a part in funding their research think of this. Uh, we also helped them design their, their version of our CDC. And there was a certain cockiness, uh, overconfidence on the part, I believe, of American doctors that they would be forthcoming. They had a professional medical uh, uh, relationship with individuals that they thought would obviate any communist uh, 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 institution uh, in Beijing or Wuhan. They truly believed it. You could, none said it to me, but at my discussions with them from January on, uh, those doctors, they were very, very certain that they would know best about what would be going on in Wuhan. Even as that virus was unleashed by the Chinese Communist Party, on the world, an unsuspecting world, and did not acknowledge it. uh, I declared on my show, Victor, that it was a viral pandemic uh, two weeks before the WHO would move to that point. The CDC wouldn't call it a pandemic because the WHO hadn't called it a pandemic. The madness of this moment uh, is, again, like so much of this, it's just stunning. and we had so much to catch up with. You suggest in your book that the fact that we were in election year 2020 and we were engaged in a veritable trade war with China at the time served as force multipliers of the acrimony or the world hysteria or the divisiveness back home. And they inadvertently or by design helped to, to, to they were, these divisiveness and this acrimony hysteria all played into China's hand in a, in a certain way, because they were, we were not able, we being the Western world, were not able to focus in a unified manner at what they were doing and what they were saying and what the WHO was. But it was kind of coincidental. We were right in this trade war that you spend so much time eloquently right. 
actually defining. And then you say, well, there was this, this virus right in the middle of it. It just historically doesn't, it's very odd. It is very odd because they are counter, uh, they, they are counter uh, events that are not necessarily in conflict as far as the Chinese uh, are concerned. You can almost see the deft hand of Chinese intelligence in all of this. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a reach at all to consider the possibility of this being engineered and purposeful uh, in the Chinese interest because they have managed inadvertently or otherwise to have taken down the economies of Europe, the United States, all of their chief competitors in the global marketplace. They have uh, killed uh, hundreds of thousands of people across the world, infected others. The effect of those infections, we do, the long-term effects of those infections, we don't know. But we do know that the Chinese have been the net beneficiary of it all. And they are the only ones responsible for this infection, this pandemic uh, that has claimed so many lives and has sickened so many millions and cost trillions of dollars in lost GDP for the world, not just the United States. So I, I'm, I'm very suspicious of both the, the coincidence, the convenience of just who benefited from it, uh, because we also know that the Chinese consciously shut down travel outside of Wuhan, but effectively encouraged international travel to, to Europe, to, uh, to the United States. And guess what? By March, we were having the virus come back into this country from Europe, as well as from, uh, from China and Asia. Is so that if one is not suspicious of all of this, um, one isn't paying attention. It, it, and it's while well, I and I really personally don't get lost in whether they or not they engineered the virus. The reality is that they made an unconscionable decision to not warn the world of what they do was a deadly virus that they had unleashed upon it. That is a moral responsibility. It is a conscious moral decision, immoral decision that they took. One of the, another theme that even uh, characterizes the chapters on domestic policy and the Trump achievement on the economy, jobs, deregulation, is this theme that you keep going back to globalism versus nationalism. And when you look, a couple more questions on foreign policy. If you, when you look at the world, and you see the United States withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, the United States withdraws from the Iran deal, the United States jawbones NATO in a way that really got people angry to up their contributions to meet their 2%. And then suddenly we move the embassy unilaterally to Jerusalem. We say the Golan Heights are not going back to Syria. Now we see this new, this new nexus between some of the Gulf states and Israel and Iran seems be out in the cold. What's your assessment, not just on the ideology, but the efficacy? Do you, this, what did he do when he decided to pursue sort of 
no better friend, no better, no worse enemy attitude abroad, the Trump administration, rather this ecumenical globalist, we're all, you know, part of the brotherhood of man. He looked at a, a world and, uh, and, and saw the absurdities of, uh, of the decisions that were being taken. As, uh, and you, you know, I hear some people sort of dismiss that as uh, a businessman's, uh, uh, you know, hard edge reasoning. I call it just intelligence and, and, and knowledge of what uh, is actually transpiring internationally. Uh, the first act, uh, by the way, uh, by this Congress, the first act uh, of the Congress after our founding uh, was the Tariff Act. And he he exploded the idea that a tariff would destroy the economy. We no longer, it's interesting to think of the things that we don't hear being spoken about in the public arena anymore as a result of this president. You don't hear people saying that nonsense anymore. You don't, you don't even hear the expression free trade, do you? Because now the whole country knows that the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable and Wall Street were lying through their teeth when they said it was hardly a zero sum game, children. This is you know, this makes us all rich and wealthy and powerful. Well, we built up a huge external trade debt and lost trillions of dollars in economic growth as a result of those deficits, particularly with China. Uh, he applied that same reasoning and clear-eyed thinking to the wall with Mexico. He was not only building a wall with Mexico, but at the same time, negotiating with Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, to join forces and put thousands, tens of thousands of Mexican troops on the borders of Mexico to stop illegal immigration. He, does he get credit for that? No, but it's what he did. And as a result, illegal immigration into this country, despite the recent surge, is still at the lowest in, in decades. Uh, so he's been immensely successful. But again, the left-wing media won't credit him. Whether it's NATO or the Middle East, as you say, this is a man who gets nominated for two Nobel Peace Prizes for two separate, two separate advancements of the interest of peace. And he can't even get the national left-wing media to acknowledge one of them as having uh, been made. It, it's, he is fighting against more evil uh, seditious forces arrayed against him, whether it's in the media, whether it is in the body politic or his own party, for crying out loud. Uh, and he has to fight them through every day and win. What you're saying kind of resonates or reflects the subtitle of your book, how the president changed the course of history forever. So if I follow you, you're saying as much as he was opposed he, he hit on a reality of truth that it's going that convinced even his enemies, and so that after Trump, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, you're not going to hear calls that says, "Don't pressure NATO, let them pay what they want, or let's get back into the climate accord or the Iran deal, we've got to get it right back, or let's watch out for those Gulf states and their nexus with Israel, or uh, maybe we should uh, stop the sanctions on Iran or let's stop the wall. But you're suggesting that he did things whose very success convinced his enemies almost as if he said the emperor has no clothes. Look at it. And now 
the dialectic's been changed, you think? Without question. I would phrase that somewhat differently. What he has demonstrated is that the assumptions of the liberal foreign policy establishment have been dashed by this president's successes because he did, in some cases, the opposite of what they would recommend or what they would expect or insist upon. If it's NATO, how dare you suggest that the United States won't pay that bill? And we have great, great uh, uh, benefits that, uh, <laughs> that result from our uh, deficit spending to support our wealthy European friends. Or in the case of the Middle East, oh, you have to sate <laughs> all of the Palestinian dreams, desires, and wishes before, before you even begin to deal with organizing and aligning the interests of the Arab states in the region. He did the latter. The result is Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and I am and we know that from his statements that five other nations are waiting to join in a new relationship with Israel, working together and assuring peace in the region. And yes, confounding Iran, which has been the lar not only the largest state sponsor of terrorism, but it's responsible for killing a third of our troops in Iraq and never being held to account. So what you're saying is if... Joe Biden were to be president, and he said, you know what, Trump was all wrong. We've got to put the Palestinians back into the center of all Middle East discussions. We've got to reopen the Iran deal. We've got to be very skeptical of this Israeli. That would have no resonance now because he's changed the entire conversation by his success to such a degree that it would be very hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I believe that. I hope that. Uh, the the uh, you know, amongst the many variables in our our, our uh, this political year, one of them is the national left wing media. They have become a fifth column uh, operating in this country rather than a than the fourth estate. They're not performing as watchdogs. They are looking. They're working as political arms, uh, action arms, of both the Democratic Party, and simultaneously. Uh, the corporations that own them, uh, AT&T owns CNN, Comcast owns NBC, uh, Disney, you know, with all the cute little Mickey Mouse pictures, uh, it, it puts an, a, a nasty reporter into the White House briefing room every day who doesn't look nearly as cute as Mickey Mouse. Uh, and they have an agenda. And when the president talks about fake news, Victor, he is... He's not talking about, in my opinion, uh, adequately a, a structure uh, that the American people need to understand. We have such a powerful consolidation of media power in the hands of a powerful consolidation of economic power, whether it be these vast media companies and technology companies, and then Silicon Valley, which, I, I mean, they have the power the economic power to, to absolutely block so much of what any other president's agenda. It just wouldn't happen. It's the reason it hasn't happened until this man had the courage uh, and the vision uh, to stand up and say, this is not right. It's why he's called for uh, antitrust actions against uh, the FANG, uh, a group of technology companies against Silicon Valley. 
uh, and insisting that there be a, a, a change in the relationship between these monster media companies uh, that control fake news. The American people are awakening to it. And I think these polls that show that they are somehow dullards and will buy into the idea uh, of uh, the Biden-Harris ticket, I think, is, I think it's fantasy land. You have a chapter on that in the book on big tech, and I think your argument is that, as you said, I don't want to use the word twice, but they have an insidious way of warping the news, whether the order of a Google search or deplatforming a Twitter account, and the bias seems to be predictably one way. And with $4, million, $4 trillion in market capitalization of Facebook and Google and Apple, all can find a little place. You talk about regulating it or stopping that monopoly, and it's almost as if that hasn't happened because big tech says to liberals, this money is at your disposal, and they say to conservatives, you are libertarian, free market, uh, laissez-faire, so it's against your philosophy to even regulate us, and then they find that soft spot between the two parties. And then you, you... in your book, you say that something has to be done before this octopus strangles all of us as far as it's a, it's a daily utility that we all depend on. And you, what, what do you think we can do about it? Well, I, first we have to identify just how vast and powerful that, that octopus really is because the interest not only of Hollywood and those media companies uh, and which extends all the way to those reporters sitting in the White House briefing room, have a closer alignment in many cases financially with China and Beijing and the Communist Party of China than they do with the United States and the interest of this nation. I, it's amazing to imagine a more, it's almost inconceivable to imagine that a government, the United States government, is a minor influence on corporate uh, uh, America to the degree that it is. The FTC, take the regulatory agencies, the FTC, uh, the FCC, you name it. Uh, They are basically gnats swarming uh, on a very large animal uh, that is indifferent. Uh, it's and this president is trying to reintroduce that along with William Barr, uh, the only possible countervailing influence against such power, and that is regulation and the ability to define markets and the actors within it, which has not been done for a very long time. You have to go back to uh, to Microsoft and that which was a failed antitrust uh, 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 action but it nonetheless was the last one that it was even attempted. Uh, this, after this election, I think you're going to see a highly energetic Donald Trump administration uh, taking on these critically important issues uh, because the nation depends on it, absolutely depends on it. One of the things that uh, I'm not sure if your readers will agree or disagree, but you you dwell a lot and focus on interest rates in the Federal Reserve, as, as does Donald Trump. And I think maybe you could clarify some of the confusion that I have, that when I started farming, I'm, stay, I'm sitting in this farmhouse that my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother built. I thought we were getting pretty good production credit rates at 14%. This was in 1980. 
And uh, every time I'd buy a bag of sulfur, it would say $2. And I'd go in and I'd see that six or seven prices had been crossed out, 210, 220, 230. So that was how that inflationary high interest rate. But now, essentially, people are purchasing homes at three, three and a quarter, three and a half. Uh, your middle class uh, citizen that's not familiar with real estate or stock market is, if you count moderate inflation into the calculus, they're getting zero on their passbook accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, the debt up, getting up to $27 trillion is financed basically, and it's manageable because we have de facto zero rates when calibrated in inflation. But you still seem to be worried that the Fed tends to want to raise interest rates too high at particular times when it's not warranted by the expansion of the economy and, and the threat of deflation? Yeah, well, the answer is, I, I have a, a simple uh, uh, view on interest rates when, as it pertains to the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. No one, no economist ever envisioned the Federal Reserve would raise rates for any other reason than motivation for price stability and the onset of inflation. And this Fed, under Jerome Powell, raised interest rates four times, four times after he, he was put in place by Donald Trump. And then the left-wing media started clucking because President Trump was saying, wait a minute, you're trying to kill this economy because it'll benefit me uh, in my re-election bid. I mean, that was really what he was saying. And it will shut down 3% GDP growth. It will uh, you know, alter the, the job opportunities in this country horribly. And he was right. And the left-wing media wouldn't acknowledge it. They raised rates four times, trying to do what? I have no idea. Milton Friedman didn't teach me that one. Uh, my professors didn't teach me why you would raise rates uh, in anticipation of a market that you could not accurately predict where, you know, at all over anything beyond six months. And that's what they kept trying to do. And Jerome Powell is, after all, an investment banker. He's not an economist. We've got lots of lovely economists in the Federal Reserve. But economists are not world-renowned because they are particularly uh, prescient and accurate in their forecasting. They are the inverse. And you have to follow markets if you are in banking or if you are in the central bank. And Jerome Powell was doing none of that. Uh, and I, so I applaud the president again mightily because he was right to stop this nonsense he did, and Jerome Powell, while he would never acknowledge that the president was right, he calmed down and it ended. And then he announced a new policy at the Federal Reserve, which no one would point out also resembled precisely what Donald Trump had been saying since the absolute incipient point of their little disagreement over interest rates. Without the presence of inflation, what in hell are you doing? And that, by the way, put uh, Trump in a majority of one. 
as the president of the United States against the uh, the wonks uh, on Wall Street, the quants on Wall Street, all who were looking to make money on uh, a little extra volatility that would be introduced by further uh, interest rate increases. Uh, it was in the in the stunning economic historians who said, "Oh my gosh, presidents cannot, cannot." just sully uh, the great pristine uh, white marble of the Federal Reserve by criticizing it. That's over. That's done. Won't happen. You'll see presidents even more energetic in the future, I'm sure, as they should be. uh, George W. Bush, as you pointed out numerous times, and you were very worried about it, doubled the debt uh, during, almost doubled it. It's, It's sort of controversial whether he quite did it. We know that Barack Obama then doubled that debt. And so we went into the Bush administration when he started with about $4 trillion, and then we went into $8 trillion, then we're, we went up to $17 trillion. And now we're, Donald Trump, had he, he, uh, he's running a 4 to $5 billion, trillion dollar deficit this year for this stimulus. At what point do, you, or do interest rates have to be de facto near zero, or how are we going to, are you worried about servicing that magnitude of a debt? And well, while Trump got more revenue from his stimulus and his deregulation tax cuts, he wasn't successful in pruning the cost of the federal government. So where, where, do, we, where do we end up if we don't do something? And what should we do? Oh, that's a great question. I wish I could give you the exact answer, Victor. Uh, but I do know that we're in a place we've never been before, but not because of econ- uh, fiscal policy choices that, uh, you know, just, you know, we happen to uh, make uh, in, in pursuit of a, a brilliant strategy. This was all reactionary to a virus that tore this economy up. We watched the, the most, as the president would say, the most beautiful economy uh, we've ever seen in this country's history, torn asunder by a virus from Wuhan, China. And we are, this is, uh, you know, we, we don't go looking for wars, but sometimes wars find us. Uh, that was the better America. Uh, we didn't go looking for this virus, but it found us. And th- I, we, I can't even imagine what other choice we had other than to stimulate, other than to add trillions of dollars to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to, uh, to assure liquidity uh, adequately uh, to get through it. I believe we're coming out that side. I don't think that we, by the way, should be putting another $3 trillion uh, into a stimulus bill uh, as Nancy Pelosi wants. And it's, it's horrible to think that we're talking about the difference between $3 trillion and $1 trillion. Once you start talking trillions, you know we've got a big problem. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed, and I was reading your book this week, is that almost every other page, you point out the role of the courts, that either whether it was a travel ban or whether uh, Donald Trump was about the wall or an executive, he was challenging the courts. And the expectation was that after... 2017, or during 2017, Trump's opponents had lost control of both houses of Congress. And one of the ways to check his executive power would be to turn to the courts. 
And they did so, as you point out, successfully. Now with this sad passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we have this frenzy we're looking at uh, right before the election. And each side has, there's the Biden rule or the McConnell rule. Really, there's no rule other than the U.S. Constitution that says exactly. the president dominates, the Senate advises, and consents, which in popular parlance means either confirms or doesn't. Uh, the Democrats lost the Senate in 14, 16, and 18. I don't know why Harry Reid did, but he ended the, as you remember, the Senate filibuster on judicial appointments right. in 2013. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very confident that I, either uh, Hillary Clinton would win or Donald Trump, after four years, would not win re-election because in, when she was much more vigorous, but in 81, she was 81 or 82, let's say 2013 or 14, when Obama had the uh, Democratic Senate and he could have easily replaced a distinguished jurist at 81, that didn't happen. So now we have this unique situation where the president has the Senate and a liberal jurist uh, passed away with a desire to be replaced by a liberal jurist from a conservative president with a conservative Senate. How do you put all this together and what, what do you think will happen or what do you think should happen in this very delicate situation and also the politics of it? if you would just comment, because the courts seem to be, I think you got a really good point that they've become almost a legislative branch that is more important or has more power than the executive branch sometimes. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, uh, I, I, and I think that we have to somehow restore those constitutional balances. That constitution insists on checks and balances. Our founders envisioned those checks being in place uh, among three equal branches. Uh, with the executive leading the government. This has been, a, 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 to me, uh, a, a, one of the great re revelations over the course of the past two years in particular has been the degree to which the federal judiciary has been politically corrupted. Uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, famously said that there are no Bush uh, judges or Trump judges or Obama judges. Uh, suggesting that there is no partisanship on the part of those judges and justices. Well, poppycock, we, we know right now, the American people are not fools. We look at who appointed a judge, and we look at their decisions in the appellate court in particular, and we know how it's going to go, whether it's right now General Michael Flint. The Justice Department has dropped charges against him. And the courts in D.C., the D.C. Appellate Court uh, and the D.C. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan, in this instance, refuse to dismiss the charges. And this is a man who's been persecuted and for four years. Forget anything about the rest of the case. There is no prosecutor except the courts itself now. This is not envisioned in our Constitution. It's not envisioned in law. They're just doing what they want because it's politically in their interest. And that's stunning stuff. Uh, I, you know, where we end up uh, with the courts uh, is going to depend greatly on whether or not we reelect Donald Trump. Uh, it's essential that we do and restore originalism 
uh, to the interpretation by our judges of the Constitution and law. You know, one of the things that uh, you talk about is that the opponents of Donald Trump not just oppose the president without military, first president without military or political experience or a nationalist populist agenda, but they seek structural changes. They want to change the dialectic or the environment or the landscape itself. And you see that if Trump were to lose in 2020 and he were uh, to lose the Senate, that we would see things such as a court packing scheme or the voter compact effort to end the Electoral College, or perhaps statehood to D.C. and Puerto Rico. Because I ask that because the theme of your wonderful book, The Trump Century, How the President Changed the Course of History Forever, assumes that the present system, within the present system, that Trump achievements are going to be eventually recognized by both sides because they hit on reality and truth. But if the system has changed, or the structures are modified so we don't have electoral college, or we have 52 states, or we have a 15-person Supreme Court, all of this beginning in 2021, do you see that, that those structural changes will change the very foundation in which we're talking today? There's another uh, assumption, presumption, and entreaty within all of that, as you, as, as you note that he wins this election because in winning the election, he assures this country's destiny. Uh, without Donald Trump in that White House, all bets are off. There is no way that uh, anyone should dismiss what is happening on, in the party of hate, the Democrat party, uh, as simply rhetoric, uh, as simply uh, a, a, a political squabble. This is a battle for the, for the soul of the nation. It is a battle for the direction of the nation and indeed for who we will be uh, as a people. And, it's, and I don't mean that to be melodramatic in any way. It's just the fact. Uh, you talk about suddenly Puerto Rico and D.C. are states. That changes who we are. That changes what we are, because that means then the Democratic Party has sufficient power to pack that court, to insist upon uh, a, 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 a terror, might as well just simply go straight to totalitarian, uh, because that is what the left wants here. They don't want to be bothered by little things like law or a constitution uh, or history or heritage or consistent and constant virtuous values. Uh, the, the idea that a political party can threaten death and destruction on the streets of America and still be regarded as a political party, uh, to me, is it's, it's nauseating to see what the Democratic Party has become. Now, my colleagues in media don't for the most part, care to talk that directly about it, but I do, uh, because I believe that's exactly what we're staring at. Uh, and it's a very ugly face indeed uh, in American politics right now. The choices are tough. They really are tough. 
that we're going to have to make over the next several years. Uh, and we're going to need a tough leader. And this president has proved he's tough, he's strong, he's smart as hell. By the way, they never want to acknowledge how smart Donald Trump is. They always say he's got great instincts. <laughs> I love that idea. He's got great judgment. He's a great leader. Uh, he's smart. And uh, he cares about this country. And I'm, I'll tell you, I'm praying he wins uh, because that's my way of praying for the country. We're out of time, Lou, and it's been a fascinating discussion. The book is The Trump Century, How the President Changed the Course of History Forever. These and other topics that we discussed, uh, the topics we discussed, again, a lot more are in the book. It's an argument that not just Donald Trump has achievements that have been underappreciated, but that he has achievements that in time history will see as a bipartisan consensus, and he yeah. really the previous uh, conventional wisdom in a way that even his enemies will have to concede. And with that, Lou, thank you so much for, for uh, coming on C-SPAN Book TV, and it's been an honor to interview you. Thank you very well, much. The honor is mine, and I thank you so much, Victor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.